Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. If you'll go ahead and grab your Bibles, we're going to continue. Uh, in this, in the spirit this morning, continue. Uh, we're gonna turn to Isaiah chapter 59. So grab your Bibles, go to Isaiah 59. It'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> we're gonna study this first Sunday of Advent. Advent is a Latin word, which just means arrival or coming. Uh, it's, it's an old, ancient tradition, this idea of Advent, tradition of Advent. Uh, for us, comes out of some um, more liturgical traditions, uh, mainline denominations, think uh, Anglican, Protest, uh, Presbyterian, that kind of denomination. And it's their stream of faith that has led them here, but it's rooted in some Old Testament ideas of celebrating feasts and festivals, things that cause us to remember and rejoice, and now then that we would wait and watch and worship together. Um, it's very traditional. Uh, normally you would see maybe an Advent wreath and we'll do some of that on Christmas Eve or you've seen Advent calendars. You've seen things where you open the doors and you get candy or uh, cars or Legos or whatever it is. Um, that's, that's Advent. But the idea of Advent is in the waiting. It's in the anticipation. Advent is rooted um, in a way that for us is not about celebrating Christmas but about anticipating Christmas. We are so prone to want to jump to celebrating that we neglect the ability to anticipate. And it's actually the anticipation that leads to the celebration. You've been at a wedding when um, the groomsmen have all come down and the bridesmaids have all come down and the flower girl's screaming and then she finally comes down and trips and falls and everybody's laughing and it's cute. And then there's this moment where the doors in the back shut, right? The doors shut. And there's this anticipation and the groom, um, if he does it right, he hasn't seen her all day because that's the right way to do a wedding. And so he hasn't seen her. I'm just kidding. You do whatever you want. He hasn't seen her all day. And there's this anticipation of what will this be like? And if you've, if you've been the groom, like it's taken forever, but it builds the anticipation of what it will be like. I think we've lost the ability to anticipate, uh, to long for something because our society is so fast paced. We've lost the ability to just sit and be still and anticipate. So Advent is that. Advent is the idea of anticipating more than it is celebrating <clears throat> for us. So it's gonna uh, root us in some Old Testament ideals. If you think back to the Old Testament, the Messiah hadn't come yet. And we live on this side of Bethlehem. We live on this side of the, of the manger, of this side of history. And we don't know what it's like to look for the first coming of Jesus. Hundreds and hundreds of years waiting for the Messiah to come. But you and I live in, what's, in what we would call, we live in the already and the not yet, which makes Advent a little more difficult for us. So Advent for us, we live in the already. He has already come, and yet he has not yet fully come, returned, and made everything right. He has not come to establish the new kingdom. So we live in this overlap of good and evil. This uh, good has entered this scene. The Messiah has entered our story <clears throat> thousands of years ago in Bethlehem. And then evil still exists. So you and I feel that war within us, don't we? Don't you feel the war between good and evil within ourselves? This is the already and the not yet. We live in between the trees, in between the time. Dave Matthews would call it the space between. <clears throat> That's where we live. And for, for me, it's most evident, I think, in my marriage and that relationship and more evident than ever when it comes to painting. I hate 
painting. I hate it. I just, I hate it. You shouldn't say hate in church, but I hate it. I hate painting. It's 2020 and I cannot figure out why we still have to put two or three coats of paint on a wall. I have no idea why we have cars that drive themselves. Uh, You can pay to go to the moon, but we still can't put on one coat of paint and that'd be enough. So this past weekend, um, we decided, hey, let's just, let's try to paint together which is always anxiety-ridden for me. Like, oh, okay, let's, let's do this. I've been in counseling for two years. Maybe it's different now, so we'll try. So we start uh, painting Meredith and I. Meredith just always has a vision of like beauty and what things should look like. She's so gifted in that way. And I'm like, I'll just slap it up there. It'll be fine. And so we get in, in everything ready. It's Friday morning. I'm like, okay, today's the day we're gonna paint. We finally picked out a color because there's a thousand versions of white you can choose. And so we chose one and we're putting it on the wall and, um, it's in the evening, late afternoon, and Meredith just looks at me and she's like, oh my gosh, you, you've been good all day long. Like, you haven't complained one time. I'm like, what am I, for? <laughs> but you're right, I haven't, you're right. It's been, I, I don't know, like it's, and so then I, I wax poetic, I go all philosophical about what God has done and all these things, which is probably true. And, um, but we know the limit, right? Like, we're not gonna paint into the night. I gotta eat, I don't wanna get hangry. We're gonna have to eat, and so, we call it quits and we get about two thirds of the room done, one gigantic wall and, and we get it done and we go to bed. All right, in the morning, I'm gonna do it again. We're gonna wake up and then we're gonna get coffee and eat and then we're gonna finish painting. I'm just, I'm, I'm psyching myself up and we get up and we get ready. There's a lot of things I have to do. It's Saturday, I gotta prep for today and all that kind of stuff and uh, we get up and get all the stuff out and she walks over to the wall that we had painted and Meredith says, this is gonna need a third coat. And I was like, I'm done, I'm out. I am no longer, this is not, this is not gonna work for me. This painting thing is not going to work. Three coats and we had the paint plus primer. So it's like two coats of primer and two coats of paint. That's like six coats of regular paint. This should be enough. Like we're not painting a black wall white. It was gray before. I don't understand why this is taking so long. Let's just fly to the moon instead. It'd be easier and the technology is there. I just, I don't know. So for me, it's that spaces of like, um, I hit my limit, right? You hit a limit where everything that I can do within myself, I'm good to this point. And apparently my, my limit is three coats of paint. I just, I'm no longer a Christian at that point and I'm, I'm done. But we all have a limit to where we get uh, before we're in the not yet, before we get to where like, okay, I, I'm painfully aware that I'm not there yet. This is what Advent is for us. It is... Um, remembering and rejoicing the birth of Christ, but we need to be longing for his return. Because if you are comfortable, if you're satisfied in this world, you're missing out on what God has for us in the kingdom to come. And so we can't grow complacent here. We're in the already and the not yet. Advent has really five main components to it. And we're gonna study all five of those. Today is hope. Traditionally hope. Then it would have a candle in the wreath and it's called the prophet's candle the candle of prophecy, which might scare some of you, uh, but it shouldn't. This is biblical. And so we're gonna talk about that today. Next week is the love candle. And the love candle is related to Bethlehem. So we're gonna study, it's beautiful. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, it's just, it's beautiful. Uh, then we'll study joy, which is rooted in the shepherds and their experience of rejoicing. And then peace after that with the angels, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then Christmas Eve, traditionally, or Christmas Day, you, you light the Christ candle, which represents the light of the world 
world. So we'll do that together as a church family at our Christmas Eve services. But today is hope, and um, we're all hardwired for hope. I think we, we all long for better days. We long for things to be different, that this, this year might have been this, but next year it's gonna be totally, totally different. We, we are that way in relationships. We have hopes in our relationships. You have hopes in your purchases. It's why you, when you buy a new car, this is going to be the car that I can hand down to my son in 10 years. This is gonna be the car that's gonna last me 150,000 miles. And then you realize they don't make cars like that anymore uh, because they want you to buy a new one. So you're gonna have to, or it's a phone or whatever it is. We, we have hope. It's your sports team. Beginning of the year, your team's the best And then three games into it, you realize it's just the same old team it's always been. Uh, Christmas in particular really preys on that within us, particularly the propaganda around it, uh, like commercials and advertising. It just digs deep into our hope complex where no matter what last year's Christmas was like or the past 25 Christmases, this one's going to be different. This is gonna be the Hallmark uh, movie. This one's gonna be so different. This is gonna be the year that my lower middle-class income is gonna be enough to buy a brand new car for me and my wife with gigantic bows on it. And we're not gonna talk about payments after that. It's just gonna be there in our driveway and we're gonna be amazed. And I'm gonna hand her the keys. She goes, oh, I can't believe you did this. And we'll never say, who's gonna pay for this? We don't wanna have a car payment. This will be the year. Or this will be the year that, um, that you finally meet that someone when you're on a work trip and you'll just bump into each other and you have to call your mom back home, but then she's sick and dying, so she doesn't know, like, oh no, I'm gonna miss the wedding, and then you hurry up and you get, you, you get married, then you kiss each other under the mistletoe at some like, town festival, and then this is the year for you. This is the year your kids are gonna love what you got them for Christmas, like they're actually going to enjoy it. Um, and they're gonna use it all year long, not just for a week, they're gonna actually like it. And they're gonna say, I can't believe you spent your hard-earned money on this for me. I can't believe you did that. And then they'll say, I got you something too. And you're gonna be like, what? And they'll be like, actually, I don't want the gift you gave me. I just, I want to give instead. I don't want to receive. This will be the year your kids won't have a Christmas wish list. They'll have a Christmas give list. They just can't wait to give to people. This is the year. This is the year that um, that crazy aunt's gonna come in town and it's gonna be totally fine at your house. Like, it's not gonna get weird and uncomfortable. You're not gonna have political conversations. You're also gonna love each other. This is the year. And then three o'clock Christmas day happens and we hit what clinically now is called Christmas depression. Because all the hopes we placed in that day are never gonna satisfy us. None of that's ever going to come true. We know better. We are like a dog who returns to its own vomit, according to Proverbs. It's never been that way. Why would this year be any different? But we're wired for hope. And so what happens is we're constantly bombarded with stories of hope, another narrative to step into. This is going to bring us hope this year. This will be different for us. But there's only one true story of hope. There's only one. And it begins back in Genesis. So Christmas uh, begins in Genesis because it's the coming of Jesus. So in Genesis, God has created the world. Everything is as it should be. God calls it good. He even calls it very good at one point. It's good. It's whole. It's complete. There's this tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve cannot eat from, but they decide to eat from it. They fall into sin. God meets them in the garden in the cool of the day. They run from him. They hide themselves. And God finally meets them and confronts them. And Eve says, or Adam says, well, I only ate it because Eve gave it to me. And Eve says, well, I only ate it because the serpent made me eat it. And then God, in only the way that God can, God brushes past Adam, brushes past Eve, and he's gonna deal with the curse. He's gonna deal with sin. He's gonna deal with the enemy. 
So in Genesis chapter three, it's the first prophetic verse we have of Christmas. Genesis three, it'll be on the screen, 14. The Lord said to the serpent, who Revelation would tell us is the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15. I will put enmity, I will put opposition, I will put hatred between you and the woman. This is not just referring to Eve. This is referring to womankind. Uh, between her offspring, humanity, or your offspring, which is um, evil, and her offspring, humanity, leading to Jesus. And he, this is the Messiah, shall bruise your head. Some translations say he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophetic voice we have of a coming Messiah who might have his heel nipped uh, by the serpent, but he will crush the serpent's head. So in the Old Testament, as people are looking forward to this coming, this, this offspring of Eve, the offspring of the woman, of the offspring of humankind, the son of man who would come, they're desperate for this to come. And so they, um, they look to people that they hope would be this person. And so Adam's not it, obviously. So then maybe it's Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. You are one of them and so am I. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Father Abraham, um, father of many nations, he disappoints them. He fails. He can't wait. He fails. Then you've got Moses. Moses sets his people free from Egypt. Oh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Huh. And then Moses, um, Moses then disappoints them. You've got more leaders after that. Then we can jump to Saul, the people of God, the Israelites, they want a king. And God says, you don't want a king. Yeah, we definitely want a king. Everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? That's not fair. That's not fair that we don't have a king and they have a king. When I'm 16, can I have a king? And God says, you don't want a king. And they say, we do. And God says, fine, have a king. And they choose Saul because he looks like a king. And then Saul disappoints them. So then they have David and David leads them, but then David disappoints them. Every single king, every single person they look to disappoints them because they're so desperate for what is to come. I'm gonna give us a quote from Paul David Tripp, a pastor and author that's gonna carry us this morning. Hopelessness is the doorway to hope. What the Israelites learned in their hundreds and hundreds of years of history is that no one, no one, gave them what only the Messiah could give. No one. No leader, no spouse, no kids, no circumstances, no promised land, nothing. And this sounds, uh, this sounds kind of anticlimactic, but it's, it's true. It sounds paradoxical. Hopelessness is the doorway to hope. So here's what I'm gonna say to you this morning. If you are hopeless this morning, praise God for you because you are on the verge of hope. My fear, though, is that most of us aren't hopeless today. We still have hopes. But we don't place our hope in Christ because our hope is still somewhere else. We aren't hopeless. We have other avenues. Only true hopelessness can get us to hope. So Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament and Old Testament prophets were called seers first because God allowed them to see things that most of humankind could not see. He would kind of open the veil, open the curtains to what he was doing in the world. 
And then their job was then prophetically to tell the people of God what they saw or what they heard from the Lord. They, they heard pure purity from him. They saw pure visions and they had to share that um, with the people. And many prophets would use prophetic poetry to do that. In the same way that we sing songs because it stirs something in us, they would write prophetic poetry and Isaiah does some of that. Uh, but prophets for the most part are not, um, they're, they're not, they're just blunt. They're just like, they just tell you how it is. They're not gonna beat around the bush. They're not gonna tell you how great you are. They're not gonna kind of Oreo the compliments around the, the criticism. They're just gonna tell you how it is. And at this point in Isaiah 59, he's just gonna tell the people of Israel how it is. They've been in, in slavery in Egypt. They've been taken over by other countries. And for a number of years, they've been in uh, exile in Babylon. And God has brought them back to Jerusalem. But like we do, he brought them back home, but they've complained about what home looks like. It's not like it was when they left. The walls are torn down. There's, there's rubble everywhere. There's just a lot of things that have to be rebuilt. And even to the point of saying, we'd rather be back in Babylon. At least we had things there. Like they said about Egypt, like they said about everywhere else. So Isaiah is going to speak to them and he's just going to be blunt with them. So this morning, I want to encourage us that hopelessness is the doorway to hope. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. We're going to move through this quickly. Isaiah 59, Isaiah says to the people of God, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. So in verse one, he's responding to accusations the Israelites have made about God. They've said, God, I thought you were strong. I thought you were good. I thought you loved us. Why aren't you doing anything? And Isaiah has to respond to them and tell them the truth. He's responding to their accusations made. But before we criticize the Israelites, let's just remember we are them as well. Because when life isn't what we hoped it would be, aren't we tempted to doubt the power and goodness of God? When you don't get the things you think you deserve, if we're honest, it doesn't take long before we're questioning God's power. And I thought you said you loved me. I thought you were powerful. I thought you could do all things. I thought you were better than this. It's in seasons of disappointment that we are tempted to believe that God is not who he claims to be. He's not strong. His arm doesn't reach. His love isn't compassionate. He's selfish. He's a liar. Whatever seasons you've walked of pain, if it's through some kind of diagnosis, some kind of illness, maybe it's infertility, maybe it's poverty, maybe it's seasons in which your, your kids were just wilding out and you couldn't get them back under your roof. Maybe it's a, a rough season in your marriage and your spouse disappointed you. Honestly, haven't we all gotten to the point of saying, God, you aren't who you say you are? Because if you were, this would have happened. Well, Isaiah has to meet them in their accusations about God. Amos is another prophet in Old Testament who's a contemporary to Isaiah. And he has a bit of a different approach to this, which I just, I wanna read through Amos chapter four, just pick up on, on the theme here. We often think that God's shorthandedness, that he can't reach, he's not strong enough, is based on his weakness. We're gonna see that's actually based on strength. Look at Amos, it'll be on the screen. Amos chapter four, verses six through 11, if you're taking notes. This is uh, Amos speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel. He said, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, meaning he, uh, they had nothing to eat. There was no food stuck in their teeth. 
lack of bread in all your places. I made you hungry, he says, and then continues, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Well, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. Well, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain. On the field on which it did not rain, it would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight in mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young man with the sword. I carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. What if what we perceive as God's shorthandedness and his lack of power is actually his grace drawing us back to him? Now you read through Amos chapter four, and I I know we've all lived different kinds of 2020, but we've all lived the same kind of 2020. And this sounds a lot like 2020, doesn't it? But here's the paradigm shift for many of us that we have to get to. Notice how God is speaking. I did it. I sent the hunger. I withheld the rain. I allowed some crops to flourish while yours withered and died. I sent the mildew. I sent the blight. I sent the locusts. I sent the pestilence. I killed your young men with the sword. I made everything stink. I overthrew your leaders. I did it. For what purpose? That they would return to him. Because here's the ongoing story of the people of God. We build idols and God tears them down. So I don't know what kind of year you've had in 2020, but here is what I guarantee is true. God is begging you to return to him. And if that means taking your small business and that means taking some of your health or taking someone that you love, if that, if that means um, taking your school options away, if that means taking away attendance somewhere else, whatever that means to you, Amos chapter four, God is saying, I did all of these things, but you still won't return to me. You still put your hope other places. I've done all this. And maybe as parents, you've had these conversations with your kids where you're just like, I don't know what else to do. I've disciplined you every way I know how to, and yet you won't return to the person I know you to be. This is what God is saying through Amos, the people of Israel. I am doing these things. So before we begin to accuse God of not being powerful, Maybe we need to recognize his heart for us, that we would be near to him. And in his grace, in his goodness, he would destroy the evil idols that are drawing our hope away from him. And I know it's a paradigm shift. I know we gotta move here. I know we have to adjust some thinking. But what if God actually believes the best thing for you is him? What if he actually believes that he is what you need? What do you do with that? And that he is jealous of your love. then why wouldn't he send hunger? Why wouldn't he destroy crops? Why wouldn't he make us poor? Because if our hope was in our money, if our hope was in our crops, if our hope is in our health and our full bellies, then our hope is not in Jesus. So Isaiah is not gonna let up. 
on them. They've accused God of not being powerful, of not being good enough. And he's gonna say this in verse two. It's your iniquities that have made a separation between you and your God. It's your sins that have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah's saying, the problem's not God, the problem is you. You're the problem. It's not that God is shorthanded. It's not that he can't save and doesn't hear. It's that you are in so much sin, you can't even see and hear him. It's you. But we rarely believe the problem is us. Isn't that true? It's not, my, it's not me. We like to believe that our biggest problems exist outside of us. So it's our spouse. My marriage is such a wreck because my spouse just won't get her act together. If he would just be home and be present more, my marriage would be better. If he would just care more for the kids, I feel like our kids would, would be better. It's never us, it's always somebody else. Our neighborhood uh, is falling apart because these people moved in. Our neighborhood is this. Our, my kids are struggling because of this. Our schools are doing something because of what they've done. Our communities, our sports teams, our church. If our church would just get their act together, if the pastor would just get his act together, these things would not be a problem we never believe the biggest problems are inside of us. They're always outside of us. If the government would just figure itself out, if we could just figure out who actually won the election, if we could just figure out COVID, then everything would be fine. But Isaiah is saying, no, 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 no. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. You wanna know why God feels far from you? It's not because he's left. But your iniquity has made a separation. So he's not gonna let up He's gonna use three different words for the evil inside of each of us. And I want this to be hopeful for you, so be present in this. This is not about your spouse or your neighbor. This is about you. He's gonna use three different words. He's gonna use the word iniquity, which is moral uncleanness. It's an impurity. He's gonna use the word transgression, which is outright rebellion. It's knowing better, but doing it anyway. That's what transgression is. And then sin. Sin is missing the mark by falling short from Romans 3. Um, I always heard it's missing the mark. So I think, well, I missed the mark right or I missed it left. But actually, it means to miss it by not even getting to the target. It wasn't even close. So he's gonna continue. He's gonna tell them who they are like any good prophet would. Verse three, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. So before we begin blaming our spouse for our issues, you, Verse four, no one enters a lawsuit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. An adder is like a viper, a venomous snake. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their paths. And they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Merry Christmas to you. I mean, Isaiah is just... It's you. Blood's on your hands. Lies are in your mouth. It's not that everyone else is a bad driver. You're the bad driver. It's you. 
It's not that everyone else is the problem. It's you. It's not that God is the problem. It's you. And this is love. This is good grace from God that he would just tell us who we are in conviction that it rises up in us, that we come face to face with who we actually are. This is the work of the prophet Isaiah. You're longing for a Messiah, but yet your hope isn't there. Your hope has been in you in such a way that now you're accusing God of not being good. He continues, this is the confession of the Israelites. So there comes a point when you're face to face with with who you are that now you've got to decide what to do. You've got to confess. Verse nine, therefore, now notice the change in pronoun. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. Because we are in evil, there's no justice, there's no righteousness. We hope for light and behold darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. Would anyone say the end of verse nine is how you feel today? How you felt in 2020? You're hoping for light, but all you see is darkness. You're hoping for brightness, but you just walk in gloom. I have something to tell you in love to you. It's not someone else, it's you. It's you. The reason there's always darkness, the reason there's always gloom, it's not because of COVID. It's not because of election problems. It's not because of racial discrimination. It's because there's sin in you. That's why there's sin in me. That's why I walk in darkness. That's why my hope is disappointed. I hope for brightness and I find gloom. That's why. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. This is an accurate representation. They know who they are. Now, this is us. This is what life is like. They're being honest. Okay, this is it. This this is what we feel like. So here comes a moment when you can accurately assess, assess who you are. When you can accurately say, okay, the problem is me. I'm the issue. Okay, now you gotta decide what you're gonna do. Will you take the way of the gospel and confess that and repent from it? Or will you take the way of Adam and Eve? Will you take the way of mankind and accuse and blame? When we're face to face with our junk, with who we are, with our darkness, we got a decision to make. Do we walk in the light of confession and repentance or do we blame it on somebody else? It's not enough just to recognize it. What are you gonna do with it? Well, here's what they're going to do in verse 12. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. This is confession. Our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us. We now know our iniquities. We're transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following God. We speak oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. They're done blaming the public squares and they're realizing, you wanna know why there's no truth? You wanna know why there's no grace? You wanna know why there's no gospel? You wanna know why there's no righteousness in government and in the public squares? It's not because of them, it's because of us. Because the church refuses to bring light to the gospel and we fall prey to the same political schemes as everybody else. It's not them, it's us. Verse 15 Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes a prey. They're owning it. They're confessing it. 
In other words, they've reached the end of themselves. They've reached the doorway of hope. They've reached hopelessness. The question for you and for me this morning is, are you hopeless yet? Or do you still have other things you can try? If I just work harder, if I do this better, if I love him differently, if I love her differently, if I just do this differently, then maybe. If she would just, if he would just, if they would just, if I would just make more money, if I could sell this or sell this kidney, then maybe I could. Like, are you, are you truly hopeless or do you have alternative solutions? Because if you have alternative solutions, you are not hopeless yet. But at this point, they've reached the end of their striving. They've reached the end of themselves. It's us. They've reached the end of it. And all they can say is, God, I've got a problem that I cannot solve. What's worked in the past is not working today. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. If you've had the thoughts, hey, if only I had blank, my life would be complete. If only I had blank, my marriage would be better. If only I had blank, um, my life would be whole. I would have joy. Then you haven't reached hopelessness. And that blank that you're putting your hope in will disappoint you. You know it will. It always has. Your spouse has always disappointed you. Your kids have always disappointed you when you put your hope in them. Your job has always disappointed you. Your finances have always disappointed you. Your church has always disappointed you. It will not meet what you need. It won't satisfy the longings of your heart. No matter what you do to fix your marriage, it will not satisfy you. You'll find another problem. We gotta get to the end of ourselves. And if hopelessness is the doorway to hope, I believe that confession and repentance open the door to hope. You can't get in. You're there, right? At helplessness, you're at the doorway of hope. But it's confession and repentance that open that door. When you come face to face with your hopelessness, what are you going to do now? Because you don't have to get there through pain. You can get there through choice, by the way. You don't have to experience all of it and try all of it. You can just choose now to not put your hope in the world but it's confession and repentance that gain us access to hope. And this has been a lesson the Lord has drilled into me for two years. I would get there and then I'd run back to my old ways. I'd run back to my blaming and accusing. It's not me, it's somebody else's fault. If they would just, if he would just, if she would just. And I never had a hope that satisfied. I was never satisfied in the Lord. But confession and repentance fling wide the gates <clears throat> into hope because there's something sacred about admitting our own brokenness. It's found here at the end of ourselves, but we don't confess and repent because we are too busy blaming and accusing. So it's not gonna get real practical at the end, so let me be practical with you right here. If your default is to blame and accuse, then you're not close to hope yet. If the issues in your life are outside of yourself and there's someone else's issue and maybe it's turned to where now they're God's issue, you haven't reached your hopelessness yet. And because you haven't reached your hopelessness, you're not gonna reach your hope. We become a people who blame and accuse. But how can you be the victim when God has given you the victory? 
How can you live as a victim where it's someone else's fault when through the resurrection of Jesus, we've been given all the victory we need? We are no longer victims to the world. We are no longer victims to slave. We are victors over the world. We are victors over sin and death. Quit living like a victim. So how does the Lord respond? The end of verse 15, the Lord saw it. He saw our sin. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So the end of this passage makes you wonder what's coming next. What's God going to do? <clears throat> because in, in my mind and in my, um, in my history, my, what I believe is true in these situations. What I believe why I don't confess and repent was because if God's disappointed me, if he's disgusted by me, then here it comes. Here comes all the hellfire. Here comes the condemnation. Here comes the destruction. Here comes the flood. Here comes the annihilation. I am done for. The reason you and I don't confess is because we have a view of God that is not accurate and true. We're waiting for the punishment, but here is what God does. What does he do? At the end of verse 16, his own arm brought salvation. (coughs) His own arm God's arm, the arm of the Lord in the Old Testament is a Jewish reference to the Messiah. So what does God do? Well, he brings salvation. What does God do when he recognizes our sin, when when we become hopeless and we confess and repent? What does he do? Does he beat us up? Does he kick us while we're down? Does he take everything from us? No, 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 no. He comes. His own arm brought salvation. His righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he puts on his righteousness as a breastplate. You should remember this from last week. A helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. Which again, if you're in my mindset, the guilt and the shame, this few verses takes us back to, ooh, I thought you said he was coming. I thought you said he's gonna rescue me. This sounds like he's preparing for war. Oh, he is preparing for war. Oh, he is preparing for war. But look at where the war is directed. Verse 18, according to their deeds, he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries. You're not his adversary, you're his son. You're his daughter. Repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Oh, he's coming and he's coming dressed for war, but the war is not against you. The war is against the serpent from Genesis chapter three, verse 15. That's what the war is against. Because when face to face with the Lord and Adam says, it wasn't me, it was her. And she says, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. God deals with the serpent first because God's gonna remove the disease before he deals with the symptoms. So is he coming for war? You better believe he's coming for war. And he's not a Swedish blonde Jesus with blue eyes and a blue sash. He's a warrior coming to defeat sin and to defeat evil on your behalf. Yeah, he's coming. And yeah, he's coming for war. But then look at verse 19. Or 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. What's a redeemer? Well, someone who buys back what was stolen to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. What is a redeemer? He's a rescuer. What is a redeemer? He is a savior. Yeah, he's adventing. He is arriving. He is coming. He's gonna deal with evil and sin, and he's coming full of grace for you and for me. But he doesn't send a deputy He doesn't send the assistant to the assistant general manager. He doesn't send an Uber to come pick us up. He comes. He comes. 
at the end of ourselves, at our hopelessness, hope has come and hope has a name. He is the redeemer who is our salvation and he has come to set you free and he is a warrior who will defeat sin and he is a good shepherd who will lay down with the lambs. This is the Messiah who is coming. Have you reached the end of yourself this morning? Are you hopeless yet? I pray to God you're hopeless. I pray to God that you've reached the end of your striving, that you have no more plan Bs. All you've got is God and that's it. That's it. This is why Matthew 1 matters to us because Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus means the redeemer who is our salvation. It's not a name she found on some Google search of trendy names. It's not some celebrity's son's name that she liked. It's not a family name. She shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Why do you name him Jesus? Because he's the rescuer. He's coming. He's coming. This took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive... Virgin is another name for a woman. Now it means virgin, but it takes us back to Genesis chapter three. She will conceive a son, that's an offspring, and the offspring is here to crush the head of the serpent. Are you hopeless yet? Because you're not crushing heads. But Jesus is. Jesus is, and he's come to set you free. Verse 23 They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. More than anything, what we need is the witness of God. More than his power, more than his might, we need his witness. So the question remains for us this morning Are you hopeless yet? in your war against sin, in your striving and what you want for your marriage and for your home and for your business? and Have you reached the end of it yet? Because I'm here to tell you, a new spouse isn't gonna help. A new car isn't going to satisfy. A new house isn't going to satisfy. A new job isn't going to satisfy. A book deal isn't going to satisfy. Winning the lottery isn't going to satisfy. A raise isn't going to satisfy. A child is not going to satisfy. These are all hopes that will disappoint you. And in the grace of God, he might send hunger and he might send pestilence that you would return to him, Emmanuel, God with us. How many of you this morning, by show of hands, would say, yeah, in my life, I have reached the end of myself. I have, I've reached the point of hopelessness. Would anybody this morning say, yeah, I've reached that, and the only thing I have is Jesus? How many of you just, in all honesty, would say, I don't know that I have yet. I think I've got other plans. Would anybody honestly say, no, I, I wish I was, but I think I'm still trusting in other things. Well, some hope in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God you'll bow your heads and close our eyes, your eyes as we walk through some response this morning. Are you hopeless this morning? Have you reached the end of yourself? 
in the grace and goodness of God? Has he torn down the high places in your heart? Like, are you still hoping in a spouse to save you and satisfy you? Are you hoping in a child? Are you hoping in a, in a, a promotion or finances? I love you, it's not gonna work. And you'll fall back into old habits and old patterns. There is a God who came to rescue us from ourselves. Is there anybody this morning who would just raise your hand and say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that I would stop placing my hope in things that ultimately disappoint me. My hope is in other places. If you could raise your hand, just honestly say, yeah, I need, your, I need you to pray for me. My hope is in a spouse. My hope is in a future spouse. It's in a relationship. Anybody this morning would say, I need you to pray for me. My hope is somewhere else and it's not in Jesus. Praise the Lord for your boldness this morning. That's confession. You're entering the door of hope. Anybody this morning who would say, I, you know what, I've never put my hope in Jesus. I've always had my hope in myself, so I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to do all the right things. I've tried to be a good spouse. I've tried to be a good parent. I've tried to be a good kid. But what I'm recognizing is there's just some unsettledness in me. I'm not settled. I don't have peace. I, I want to hope in Jesus as my Savior today. Anybody this morning who would want to give your life to Jesus, that he would be the Savior of your life today? You'd be satisfied in him? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for Christmas. And not just the pageantry around it, although it's beautiful, and it, it too bears the marks of your grace. But I thank you uh, that you came for us. You advented for us. We couldn't do it on our own. And the times that we are tempted to take that back, would you be so kind as to give us an Amos 4 that we might return to you. For those of us this morning who have wandered, God, would you draw us back to yourself? Give us courage to return to you, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who begins and finishes. You are good and you are powerful. Forgive us for doubting it. Help us to rest in your love today. In Jesus' name, amen.